This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 9th of January 2018. A podcast about patching Hadoop and the surrounding ecosystem for anybody working with or investigating big data and advanced analytics. My name is John, and here's my co-host Dave. How are you doing in the new year, Dave? I'm doing very well. Happy 2018. <laughs> well, it's the second episode of the year, so we should all be sober by now. We should be happy and joyful and looking against another year of work, hard work in the big data space. This is true. This is true. And after the, uh, I think, future predictions from last show, it was last show, if I'm not mistaken, uh, this is a news episode. We've got a couple of news articles, and uh, unless you have something else you want to add before we get in that? No, let's roll straight on into it. Okay, the first article we have on the docket is a bit of a, a lightweight one, but it's one I picked because it, it sparked a little question in my mind. I was wondering how, what, your, what, your, what your thoughts were about that. It's an article about CERN, the uh, European uh, super collider in uh, half Switzerland, half France, if I'm not mistaken. And it's a blog from uh, Databricks, which is the first question I had. I'm not entirely sure why Databricks did this in, uh, blog. And the article actually talks about how CERN had to redo, re-architect uh, their big data solution because these, uh, well, the big, the big collider, of course, produces masses of data whenever they do a little collision there. Well, there's no such thing as a little collision in that, in that <laughs> environment, I'd say. And this little graph on the article, uh, links in the show notes, of course, where you can see that uh, before 2014, that uh, was reasonable. They had about 200 gigabytes a day, which is uh, a lot, but still. But from that point on, it really went up. And that's when, I think when Atlas went into operation, and now apparently they're almost on a petabyte per day. And I actually have some inside knowledge there, because in my previous, previous job, I was working at the Dutch Supercomputing Center, where all that data was stored as one of the uh, main uh, tier one copy sites. So I do know that that was the amount of data that came in the last couple of years. And the article just uh, explains how they've uh, moved on to a uh, pretty much Hadoop-based uh, environment. And... Uh, yeah, I have two little questions about the article. Not about the article itself. It's a, it's a nice read. It's fine. But about the, the decisions they made. First question I had is, why is this a Databricks blog? Because they're talking about a full Hadoop in, uh, installation. And if I think of Databricks, I see them as a Spark uh, powerhouse. No way around that. But I didn't think they used uh, Hadoop underneath. They just put uh, clusters of Spark nodes up and have people compute on those. Right? Am I wrong? Yeah. I I wonder if this is sort of basically trying to um, almost tag on to the halo effect of these kind of um, sessions. I mean, obviously, the um, the article talks about the fact that the, the team spent three months, you know, prototyping with various different tools and technologies, and they uh, they ended up, you know, choosing Apache Spark. Mm-hmm. Notice they say Apache Spark, not Spark from Databricks or anything like that, um, and sort of over Impala and Oracle. But there's no sort of mention of you know the the Databricks um, uh, sort of uh, specific environments or anything like that. Well, no, it's so, actually detail. It's running on hate on Hadoop, so it's not yeah, on, yeah, on HDFS yeah. with Avro and Parquet and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah, I. The, as I say, the only thing I can think of is that it's, um, it's you know, it really Databricks just saying, look, 
amazing things are also are being done on Spark everywhere, like this. Well, Databricks is the main contributor of the Apache Spark project, of exactly. course. So, for that point of view, from that point of view, it's definitely a, a plus for them, even if it's maybe not running on their environment. It's still a yeah a big win, let's say, for Spark as a, yeah. as a project. Yeah, very yeah. much so. But it, I mean, if you look at the the architecture diagrams, you can see you know, it's making use of you know, a lot of the key components you'd expect to see. You've got some mm-hmm. Kafka, you've got some HBase, you've got some oh. Jupyter. I see it's a very traditional uh, layout. I mean, CERN is supposed to be, well, they are a high-tech, uh, get-to-know-new-stuff, innovation-based thing. And uh, this is an architecture that I've seen three years ago. I mean, Kafka, yep. HBase, HDFS, Spark, Jupyter. Yeah, uh, nothing new in there. No Zeppelin, no no NiFi, no Pulsar, no no Kafka streams. Um, HBase, in case hard to get around. Uh, Avro Parquet means they're still not using Hive at all with uh, ORC or anything mm-hmm. like that. So uh, it's a bit of a yeah, unexpected. Let's say I expected something more modern there. Some something that would, I would say, oh, I don't know this thing. What is this? But, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's all the the old old guard. But so, do you think part of that though is that can they? Uh, I mean, interesting question. Can they afford to try something oh, yeah. new and untested at scale when they're dealing with oh, yeah. a petabyte a day of data? Do you need to use old guard to use your phrase uh, architectures in um. order to guarantee? Well, yeah, yes and you no. Can handle that. On the one hand, you have to make sure they don't lose anything, and that's why they still have some very old, non-big data architecture things in there as well, just to make sure that the data gets kept. And the first thing that happens with the data is it gets copied to about 14 sites in Europe, I think. Yeah. So that's one thing. The second part there is how to, to work with the thing. And, I mean, uh, when I was at Sarsara, I know that CERN was looking at uh, things like Ceph when it was really in beta. Uh, they were doing Hadoop before Hadoop was really anything productionized, production ready at all. So, yeah. yeah, in the past, they have done a lot. On the other hand, of course, this whole collider thing, it's definitely started out as a science project, obviously. But I think at this moment, it's not just big data, it's also big business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's a big compete comp- competition going on between Europe and the, and, the v- and the US on this whole collider thing. The US uh, collider kind of dropped uh, dropped away a couple of years ago due to lack of funding and stuff. So Europe really has a, yeah, a step forward here. And yeah, from that point of view, I can imagine that they do want to have something, uh, I don't know what's the phrase, uh, proven, industry ready, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. I mean, do you think the fact that, I mean, one of the other things I noticed during the article is that it mentions the fact that this is, um, it's all running on their OpenStack environment, mm-hmm. you know, 200, you know, quarter of a million cores mm-hmm. of, um, of OpenStack. Do you think, do you consider that to be something that's, um, you know, new, unusual, a little bit different at least? OpenStack? Or? No, OpenStack is, uh, by these, the, today's, it's, it's old hat. It, uh, OpenStack, it, they actually went from Open Nebula to OpenStack, uh, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, about five, six years ago, something like that. Yeah. And, well, OpenStack's been a bit of a, let's say I'm not a fan of OpenStack. Sorry, people. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've uh, struggled with it. And I can see with a uh, quarter million cores, OpenStack probably has some advantages. When I played this thing, I had a cloud of about, oh, I was thinking, a little under 100 nodes. And then OpenStack is just too big. It's just too much. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just too many different things have to interconnect. And to get the synergy, to get the, the value out of the synergy, you need to have a lot of cores out there. Yeah. But apart from that, I don't know what they did the last couple of years because I've been away from uh, the environment there. But before that, they were using also the the the, the finished parts of uh, OpenStack that didn't use anything specifically new or experimental. It was just the moment that OpenStack became stable and mm-hmm. then you were not talking about security yet and stuff like that. Those are the things they adopted. So I don't see that as a innovation thing because if you look at the um, the Jiras and stuff out there, I haven't seen a lot of certain things uh, being added to that. So, nah. The only reason with OpenStack probably is because uh, VMware is too expensive. And they've got the people to look at it. Fair enough. Anyway, that was the first question I had about the article. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second one you already uh, mentioned, actually. Just uh, always you to, to just, I don't know, let the cat out of the bag before I'm ready. Pretty but, much. In this article, it describes how uh, CERN had uh, decided to choose between three possible uh, technology stacks. Uh, one being Spark, which was the one that won, obviously. And the other two were Impala. Okay, I can see Impala. It's in a memory data set. Yeah, I can see. And the third was Oracle. I don't understand why you would, at this technical level, do comparison between a Hadoop or Impala Spark environment and an Oracle environment. I can see the business guys have wanting the tech guys to explain to them why Oracle or Hadoop, the, the pros and cons. But would you ever do a benchmark to compare Oracle and Spark performance? In my opinion, they're two entirely different tools for entirely different so... reasons. My see my take on this was slightly different, mm-hmm. and I it's all from. I mean, we're we're sort of guessing by just seeing mm-hmm. one word in in the in the entire article. Article that it's only mentioned once. It just says Oracle. So my sort of guesswork on this mm-hmm. is it must have been the Oracle Big Data Appliance. It can't have been Oracle, as in. Oracle, the relational database, because you're right, it, it doesn't make it sense. It doesn't make sense. So I wonder if they were looking at, you know, Oracle Big Data Appliance versus, you know, just a, a home built system with Impala, or as they ended up with a home built system with with yeah. Spark. The Oracle uh, Big Data thing that's based on Cloudera, isn't it? Yeah, that's a half. I don't know, Frankenstein monster of Cloudera. Yeah, it's it's a black box. I mean, like all these appliance things, they're sort of black box. Certain APIs you can use, certain components you can use. The rest of it is sealed off behind a easy-to-use management UI. I don't think think that's what they meant, because in the article also says that before they had this new stuff in place, their installation was based on two Oracle databases. So Maybe. maybe they were just comparing it to what they already knew and see if the big data stuff was able to provide better or e- at least equal um, uh, performance or functionality. But as you say, it's a, it, the problem is it's a very it's a very weird comparison to do for mm-hmm. us coming from the big data world. Um, 
it just it just seems like a completely off the wall comparison when we're typically talking about sort of um, you know streaming workloads, um, maybe machine learning, maybe large scale ETL. Who knows? Well, this whole thing was mostly for just storing the data, right? It's just to get the data in and make mm-hmm. sure it's, it lands somewhere. This is not yet about any kind of machine learning and analytics on top of it yet. But it's just if, if it was an insurance company, they're used to the old big iron and that's what they like. And if you want to have to move to a Hadoop cluster, they will need convincing. So I would expect that an environment like that would compare these things. And I've actually lived through a couple of customers that have asked me, can you please build this Hadoop cluster? And and make it faster than Oracle on this one very complex SQL join three pager thing. Mm-hmm. But CERN, they're used to working with big data since day one. So yeah. that's kind of what, uh, yeah, surprised me. Apart from that, it's a fun article. It shows you that uh, Hadoop can still scale even if you're using yeah. the old stuff. <laughs> and it also gives a lot, of, a bit of nice information about the whole collider itself. So, I mean, if you're in the big data sphere, you probably have heard about CERN, and it's a fun piece of tech, a fun piece of uh, scientific engineering, and uh, it actually seems to work. <laughs> Very nice. So, that was my first article. Uh, what did I have? That's a second article. Oh, second article. Okay. If I if I say benchmark, what do you say? Lies, damn lies, <laughs> and benchmarks. <laughs> yeah, we've actually been talking about this on podcast uh, often, often, I guess, uh, that uh, benchmarks are, I mean, they have their place, and it's good that benchmarks exist because it shows the different vendors that they have to compete against other vendors so they have to be better and that's how innovation works and that's great but we've also talked a lot about the fact that if you have big data in your environment uh, maybe do your first choice of the the chosen few based on public benchmarks but then always go with your own benchmarks take your own workloads run them with the the chosen few and see which of those work best for you in your specific environment because using synthetic general benchmarks is, well, it's not saying much or anything at all sometimes. And sometimes, according to this little article on Data Artisans from 15th of December, titled The Curious Case of the Broken Benchmark, Revisiting Apache Flink versus Databricks Runtime. This case actually turned out that Databricks had published a couple of benchmarks where they were really trashing Flink, that uh, Databricks Spark environment was much, much faster. Turns out there was a little bug in how they did their data generation for the test. And if they corrected that, they were actually a lot worse than Flink. The, the other interesting thing about this is they actually comment during the article um, that they 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 again, they link to another one of their blog articles where they actually share the fact they're not actually very fond of commonly used stream processing processing benchmarks in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just I mean I feel vindicated here that what we've been saying all this time is just true and people should listen to us. <laughs> Always. But, I do think also this is a nice case of the proof of how open source can really benefit the community. Because if this was a case of, uh, I don't know, Oracle and IBM doing comparisons of benchmarks, this would never come out. 
because with closed source software, closed source benchmarks come along and it's very hard to figure out if something's wrong in there. So it's even worse. So I guess if these kind of things come out, if this kind of uh, articles do get published, I guess you can trust benchmarks a little bit as long as you don't trust the latest one, but give it a couple of months to make sure that everybody has looked and uh, went through the fine-tooth comb and uh, didn't find anybody. looked and responded, basically. (laughs) Well, it's the whole thing about uh, uh, the scientific community, right, where you publish a paper and then you have peer reviews. I guess these benchmarks also fall under peer review methodology, apparently. And uh, if something weird is in there, it does come out. Yeah, and it's not as if it's a it's a small difference. You know, it Flink ends up in you know the majority of these coming out about you know thirty percent faster or thereabouts. Yeah, I mean the difference between the old and the new version is really night and day. And I guess we should kind of call Databricks. I mean. If you look at the technology landscape today between Spark, Flink, uh, and things in that, uh, in memory processing stuff, let's say, true, there's always going to be one that's better than the other one. But the chance that your stuff can be twice as fast as the others, yeah, you, you should say, hang on, is this, yeah, I'm happy, sure. But let's look at this again in detail just to make sure we don't we didn't make any mistakes because it would be very strange if that was true, right? Yeah, and and when you're putting these sort of things out, you're putting your reputation on the exactly. line as as uh, being the expert in this space. So to get caught out like this, mm, a little bit unfortunate. But as you say, the, the good news is that uh, um, the innovation pushes everything forward. So I'm sure we'll see uh, Spark speeding up some operations within uh, um, within what they're doing, and we'll see this uh, this come round for another round. Yeah, sure, if nothing else, this will give Databricks reason to relook at their own code and uh, see how they can improve stuff even more. Because, uh, well, they've, they've yelled wolf, uh, scried wolf now. Now they have to make sure that they can prove it next time or <laughs> nobody will believe anymore. But still, on the subject of benchmarks, it's, it's a benchmark. It's nothing more than that. Yeah. Do your own benchmarks. That's the most, that's the most valuable thing. Yeah, yeah. Benchmark with your own data, your own processing. Far more valuable. Yeah. Because that way, when you upgrade, you can actually compare things that make sense to you. Exactly. All right, not much more talking about that. I mean, we have to say both uh, Databricks and uh, Flink, I mean, Spark and Flink, they're doing good jobs. They're doing giving us uh, good uh, products, good, good software. So keep it up, guys. Just be careful with benchmarks. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else on that for you? No, it's all for me. Let's let's gaze into a crystal ball instead. Yes, let's do some more future prediction. I mean, we did it last episode and we're not, well, we are not doing any more, but other people are. And I found a couple of articles online where Apat, uh, apparently Vinod Vavilapali, excuse me if I butchered that, uh, has been talking to the industry. Uh, I didn't find the Hortonworks blog because uh, Vinod is actually a director of engineering at Hortonworks and I would expect it to have the, the source material on the, on the Hortonworks side, but nope, nothing there. But I did find a couple of them and the best of those, the most readable one was on Data Nami, uh, dated uh, also 15th of December called uh, Hadoop 3.0 SIPs, but what does the roadmap, roadmap reveal? And they do throw in a couple of things from dog cutting as well, but that seems mostly unrelated to the article itself. 
If you go to the second part of it, then actually it talks about what Vinod has been talking about uh, when he's planning out to do versions 3.1 and 3.2. And yeah, well, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's good to hear the, the 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 forward looking of these guys, what they're what they're doing, and one of the uh, startings of the uh, articles, which is a nice thing actually, is that they say that some of the new features in Hadoop 3.0 weren't designed to bring immediate rewards, but pave the way for things to come. Mm-hmm. Which is a bit strange actually, because I would expect uh, uh, something like that to go into a 2.9, 2.9.5. 3.0, any .0 release, should be the new thing that uses the stuff that was paving the way. <laughs> so, still, that's a bit strange, but still. Looking, I think, yeah. Do you think that some of this, though, is because uh, when they're talking about the, the features that you're going to run through, do you think it's the case that you know the, the code will be there in the 3.0 release, but they'll consider it as... Um, you know, unsupported tech preview beta. You know, whatever you want to, um, however you want to phrase it. Whereas, you know, come three point one and three point two, they'll actually consider these individual pieces of technology to be supportable. Oh, GA. If I have to make a a, a stance, a, a principled stance, I would say that a .dot o release should never have anything in tech preview. Because a .0 release should be the culmination of all the tech previews that came before it and have a new golden standard of the product going forward. And then next release, you start adding stuff again. If I put my very pessimistic negative hat on, which <laughs> I wear every day of the, of the day of the week, I must admit, it sounds more like they wanted to do more than 3.0 but couldn't get it in, so they had to put this, push it forward. Yeah. I mean, in the end of the at the end of the day, it's the same result. <laughs> yeah. And uh, basically, do we care? Not really. The good, the, the important thing here is that new stuff is still coming. It's not finished yet. Not that everybody thinks it was. I think, but uh, having some insight here is fun. And my computer just did a strange thing, and it's back again. Okay. That's why we record this podcast on a separate computer than my main computer. <laughs> Okay, after there's a little insight in the background of my podcast studio. Let's talk about what was in the article, actually. Uh, first, he talks about 3.1, where the main things he uh, pulls out is GPU support. And GPU support, not just in uh, running jobs that can use GPU, because basically, if you want to do, I don't know, uh, machine learning or AI stuff using Spark, using GPUs, at that point, it's Spark that needs to be able to talk to GPUs. Hadoop itself doesn't really care at that point because Yarn basically fires off black box containers that run code, and that code needs to do whatever it does. What he's talking about here is having, apparently, GPU support in your Yarn queues. So you can actually put up queues that say, this queue can use a GPU, you can run GPU, three GPUs, whatever. So we can, <clears throat> today, do your scheduling based on, if I'm correct, CPU and memory. You should also be doing, able to do it on GPU support, which is good, I guess. Because that way you don't have to just put your ARM labels on GPU-enabled nodes and make sure people with GPU access go to those queues. Yeah. You can yeah, have a more fine-grained uh, way of uh, putting in there. 
And well, it's definitely a case that CPUs become more and more important in these uh, environments. As I predicted, the big iron things is going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a good one. And the other thing he talks about for 3.1 is a uh, continuation of Docker. Uh, which I don't think is really new. And this is where my, they didn't have time to put it all in the 3.0 release comes from. Cause, uh, Docker was always there to put the non big data workloads, the, the long running jobs and stuff. And here he adds to it. Yeah. It also gives us the uh, possibility for package isolation. So you don't have any library conflicts anymore between different versions of Python, Perl, whatever you're using at that point. I don't think you use Perl. <laughs> don't know where that came from. Uh, but that's something I've heard uh, from Hortonworks and from Cloudera for a couple of years already. Mm. Not doing it through Docker. That's the new thing. And I do agree that Docker will give them, well, will give a nice added, a more interesting way of doing it, more easy way of doing it. I know Cloudera is able to do it with their uh, navigator software. They can actually do different versions of uh, uh, the same products but it still has some limitations as far as I know yeah and you can do a similar sort of thing with um, uh, with Ambari if you've got you know you can run multiple different versions of Spark for example so there's there's limited examples of that in the real world but and the Docker thing will definitely make that a lot more more robust Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this isn't really new. So this is something I expected to be here in 3.0. So these two kind of look like with GPU on the RNQs. queues. Yeah, that's a nice feature. Didn't hadn't heard that before. But the Docker thing that really sound, feels like something they pushed forward because it didn't get ready or was causing too much issues or something. Mm-hmm. Then moving on to the 3.2 release. Uh, first thing he talks about is FPGAs. And yeah. uh, it doesn't surprise me too much. I mean, if you have GPU support, making the jump to FPGAs isn't that big an issue. GPUs basically are PCI cards in your computers. FPGAs are the same thing. Again, it's the late products, it's the Sparks, the Hives, whatever, that will need to have be able to work with these things and do something useful with them. Uh, there's no talk of having uh, Yarn queues based on FPGAs or Yarn scheduling based on FPGA. It's more of support for FPGAs, so... Not much more information there. And I can't wonder if these things aren't pushed by the blockchain, bit mining, uh, Bitcoin mining, for craze that's going on at the moment, having CPUs and FPGAs in your clusters through mining. So I don't I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the two things that particularly I thought were interesting about this element were, one is that, you know, 3.1 introduces uh, GPU support, and then 3.2, hey, ditch GPUs, don't worry about GPUs, use F- F- FPGAs. Um, but the other thing was the there's a link to um, IBM's um, power servers and the fact that they actually already have F- uh, FPGAs uh, in them for um, boosting the performance and scalability of graph databases. Mm-hmm. So yep. you know, we'll we'll see whether this um, does become uh, more of a, a, a real focus. But i I think it is. I think there is more of more behind it rather than just yeah. the uh, the the mining side of things. Yeah, I mean, what, I did, I did, you're correct to say what you're saying there because I did pronounce it incorrectly. But what I meant is that the Bitcoin thing is making these FPGAs and GPUs, um, everybody's working with them, looking at them. The NVIDIA and AMDs and other companies are 
really making uh, big advantages on the hardware at the moment. So it becomes an issue again. FPGAs, when I started, I don't know, working the space 10 years ago, FPGAs was a huge thing. And then it completely died out because they were yeah. too hard to work with. They were too expensive and yeah. disappeared completely. And the whole Bitcoin thing is bringing this back to the foreground. I mean, everything that's everything that's old is new again, right? <laughs> and everything that's new is old again. Exactly. Just wait long enough, and it'll all come back to, <laughs> back to uh, being on form. Now, for the thing that you'd mentioned with the IBM thing, in that case, it would be, for example, the graph database would be like having HBase work with uh, FPGAs. Yeah. And at that point. Hadoop doesn't need to know that FPGA is in there because HBase is a long-running thing that just runs as a service on your Hadoop cluster. Um, I would hope that these FPGAs will be, will be more um, made available for AI and um, machine learning because I know that uh, Google has their own... I uh, forget the name of the thing, but they have a uh, hardware chip, an FPGA, they built themselves specifically for AI. Uh, Microsoft has something called Project Brainwave, I think, if I remember correctly, which is also an FPGA kind of thing. And mm-hmm. those will be rolled out on the public clouds, of course. I haven't really heard anything from Amazon yet, but I'm pretty sure they're also doing something there. Mm-hmm. If they have that in the public clouds, it would be fun if you can actually use scheduling to schedule your jobs making use of those SPGAs. So that's yep. the third avenue where I can see this having a, a reason to be. But still, it's a good thing. Final thing I want to talk about for the 3.2 release, and that's the most important, the most remarkable one, I think. And I'm going to just read a little part from the article here. Hadoop 3.2 is a, po- uh, is, well, that's not English actually. Okay, has support for a new key value store called Ozone. According to uh, Vinod, Ozone will bring an S3-compatible API storage and will be optimized for storing smaller files that are not a good fit for HDFS. So basically what the article talks about here is that this would not replace HDFS. HDFS will still have a reason to be, but we all know that HDFS has a problem with small files. And especially if you go into key value storing on an HDFS file system, that really works bad, and that's why everybody uses HBase. I can't help but making a comparison with the Kudu project from uh, that Cloudera sponsored, mm-hmm. which is pretty much doing the same thing. It's also replacing, well, not entirely replacing, giving an alternative for HDFS to store things in a NoSQL kind of fashion. People want to know more about uh, uh, Kudu, look in our backlog. We have uh, an episode with Mike a couple of months ago, uh, well, end of the summer, I think, beginning of September, mm-hmm. which talks in depth about Kudu, so there's more information there for you. But uh, it looks like uh, there's a second uh, similar thing, I'm not entirely sure how similar it will be, called Ozone that's going to come in there as well, which is good because it makes competition and competition uh, fosters innovation, right? Absolutely. Now, we haven't heard much about Ozone before, at least I haven't. I'm not sure if you have any more information there. Yeah, so I... I'm sure that it has come up somewhere, and I can only think that it came up as a side comment during one of the uh, DataWorks Summit sessions um, last year. <laughs> Seems a little bit strange saying last year now, but... Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm sure I heard it come up, but just as an aside. Mm-hmm. So, like you, I'm expecting to hear a lot more about it, um, maybe upcoming summits, and maybe we'll be able to get someone from the Ozone Project uh, 
on the podcast to, to talk us through. Yeah, we're going to do a little search, see if we can find somebody. And if somebody out there knows a lot about Ozone and wants to talk about it on the podcast, hey, get in touch and we'll get you on the show. Very much so. So that's it for the uh, technology part. The final thing I want to mention from the article is that apparently they're going to help us put out more podcast uh, episodes. Because <laughs> they're going to accelerate the release cadence. Uh, again, quoting from the article, Hadoop version 3.2 is being penciled in for delivery around the end of the second quarter. That's uh, in less than six months' time. That's uh, That's fast. Uh, Vinod uh, said that, and uh, apparently the Apache community is trying to accelerate the release cadence for the project and wants to deliver a major upgrade every three months. Now, that's fast. And yeah. you're talking major upgrade, right? Not just a patch release. That's uh, that's fast. I mean, I don't see them doing this without having paid developers. If you And of course, a lot of the people working on the Hadoop uh, projects, and not just Hadoop itself, but also on Spark and Hive and all the rest, are paid developers by, by by companies. If you look at Hortonworks, there's a lot of paid developers there. IBM has now a lot of paid developers working on Atlas, I would imagine. So that means that there's a lot of backing coming from there. You just can't keep this cadence, uh, cadence up, I think. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Anyway, a lot of acceleration going on, a lot of new stuff coming out, and that means that we'll have a lot to talk about in the months to come, which is, of course, great. Yes, so I do just have a quick addendum to the ozone topic. I knew I'd heard about it somewhere before, but actually, just done a very quick search as you were talking about that. The last time ozone really popped up was back in 2014. Hmm. So it's been a bit quiet for the ozone project. So I think the first question I have when we get somebody on for the project is, what have you been doing for the last few years? <laughs> It's a ninja approach. You don't see them yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah. Don't see them coming. Yeah, very much so. No one expects the ozone project to leap out of nowhere and serve all your data. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, interesting. It's interesting. I mean, HFS is showing its age a little bit. Mm-hmm. It is uh, getting old. I mean, there's still some stuff coming on. I mean, the erasure coding was added recently and treated those. I'm so excited so for still, erasure coding. Yeah, I still have to see if it's going to be used or not. Because, again, uh, let's not talk about that. We're uh, <laughs> over half an hour already, so we have to put a pin in this one and talk yep. about it in the next episode. That way we have something to talk about next time. Indeed. Well, so, with that, that's probably about all the time we have for today. I hope you enjoyed this serving of bite-sized big data. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, please go to www.roaringelephant.org where you can find out more information, and there's even a feedback form there. You can follow us on Twitter using the at Hadoopcast tag and contact us by email at podcast at roaringelephant.org Use any of these means to send us thoughts, comments, criticisms and other feedback. Until then, my name is Dave and my name is John. I look forward to talking to you next week.